Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 5, Episode 8. I'm your host, Rick Wormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, I'll be addressing some questions that have come in over the last couple of months, including what makes a good franchise, increasing difficulty between buyers and sellers, reaching agreement on terms of deals, and maybe a quick update, too, on real estate activity in this marketplace. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. Well, hello, everybody. And I'm excited to be here today to just kind of chat with you. By the time you will have uh, listened to this, college football season will already be well underway. NFL, too. For those of you who still watch and listen to that stuff like I do, I know you probably are feeling like it would never get here, right? Like, oh, it's a football season yet. So I do a little boys Bible study with some high school boys. Man, they're all into the fantasy football league. Holy cow. So I'll have like big old pile of chicken wings and went through the draft last week. And it's kind of funny because I ask people, you know, I live near Pensacola, Florida. I ask people kind of what your favorite team is. You might be surprised if you look at us geographically in the Panhandle of Florida. We are pretty equally situated between LSU, Florida State, Auburn, Alabama, and then, of course, Florida, because we're in the state of Florida, and also the Naval Academy, because Pensacola has such a huge Naval Academy presence from all the pilots here, since Pensacola is where all the naval aviators come to get their initial training. So it's this funny and weird mix of people when you start asking, like, who's your team in college football? You know, just all these teams. And so you have kind of like, There's no more than like 20% of the crowd will answer for one team. So it kind of makes it fun. But I hope you guys are enjoying the start of the fall. It's been a warm one. Just a quick update here on Unbridled side. I mentioned it a little bit maybe on the last podcast that you heard, which is going to be the webinar. And by the way, a big shout out, you know, to Nick Cole of MUFG and Mike Egan of Snova's Bank, who did our last webinar with us that we just put into a podcast. So you've probably heard it if you listen to the last podcast. I think it's season five, episode seven. So uh, if you haven't, please do check it out because it has some really good information that we kind of wrap at length about the status of the lending market and the M&A market and our economy and all those things that kind of affect how you might buy and sell and finance a restaurant or a franchise business of some kind. So it's a good one, but I might have repeated myself by saying it, but just a little update like I normally give. In the last like 60 days or so, we've Unbridled's uh, sold 28 Taco Bells in, you know, in the New Orleans area, 12 Taco Bells in the Arizona area, and then like over 20 wing stops, I believe. It was around 20 wing stops in the Ohio area. Good transactions, lots of buyers, good financing terms, you know, really strong interest. Those are both pretty high-profile brands right now that are really doing well, right? Everyone loves Taco Bell. They're kind of the darling of our business. You've heard me say that before. Wingstop has just had an incredible run. They've just been killing it, you know, with low wings costs, rollovers, like they have really, unlike the rest of us, I suppose, they've had the, the opposite of food inflation right now, and they have really good wing prices. Sales are up a lot because, you know, largely because of demand, but also they raised prices quite a bit last year when wing prices were high, 
And that's one of the little, you know, is kind of a sidebar. You know, the prices are really high right now, both for consumers when you go to buy franchise stuff, right? Like you go to buy a hamburger, or you go to buy a shake, or you want to buy, you know, a taco or whatever you're going to get, pizza, whatever it is, like the prices are going up, right? And you might have some a little bit of sticker shock. I know I kind of do. It's my job to go. What a fun job, right? But, you know, it's my job to go eat at a lot of these places and, you know, and to use the services of a lot of these franchise locations because I got to know about it for my job. And so I've noticed it myself. You know, I've noticed that the prices have come up. But for those who are both investing, operating, and also considering such things within the franchise space, at least in restaurants, beware that in a good way, that you will see kind of a wing stop situation at some point, right? Where you're going to have, we're going to have, you know, some deceleration of food cost inflation and maybe probably at some point, and I don't know when it is, there are others who know more about this than me in the industry across most brands. They actually have paid consultants who do this, but you know, the commodity costs will eventually reverse. It may be 18 months and they will, you know, hopefully go down, right? Not just like the deceleration of food cost inflation lessens, but actually the cost of food actually drops. And when that happens, hardly anyone I know is reducing their pricing, right? So at that point in time, you should see some major EBITDA increases like the Wingstop people have seen this year because sales will be strong and to hurdle all the fixed costs, and then all of a sudden the cost of food drops. That's our hope, right? That's our hope. And then probably what you see is you see probably a shortened period of restaurant operators doing pretty well financially, and that could be the time at which some people decide to sell their companies, you know, because their EBITDA will be up depending on the market conditions. But then typically what you see too, and this is of 20 years of experience seeing it, is you see companies getting out in front of the franchisor starting to do discounting, right? They'll start discounting because they'll see franchisee profits are huge and then they'll find a way to, in many cases, look at the menu prices, do some consumer research at their corporate offices, and they'll come to the rightful determination that customers think the prices are too high. And you'll see discounting and maybe a little bit more of a price war that happens. So that's kind of a little bit of the cycle of things. But it's been a good last 60 to 90 days to close those three transactions. We've taken on, I think, four or five new transactions in the last 60 days, totaling about over 300 now, almost now. I guess I'm 400, maybe closer to 450 locations. So these are bigger transactions that are somewhere between 50 and 200 locations per deal. One franchisee. And they're in brands that I maybe hadn't expected to do business with, maybe like the largest franchisee in a brand that's smaller and doesn't have a natural buyer for them. You know, like think of a brand that might have a bunch of 10-unit franchisees and then 200-unit franchisees in the brand, right? Something like that. And the 100-unit franchisee who realizes they have an asset that might be attractive to a larger audience than the existing 10-unit franchisees around them decides to look, you know, outside of a standard way to sell their company and we get a phone call, right? So we've got a couple of those going. I think we've got like 14 assignments. We're looking at a number of other valuations and totaling crazy, listen to this, a totaling 16 different brands and several of them are outside of restaurants now. So I'm telling you all this not to pump up unbridled, but to give you a viewpoint of what we're seeing in the marketplace, right? So that would represent a wider swath of business across brands than I've seen in my career. And the size of the deals has maybe doubled in size. This is of the deals that we're just looking at or recently taken as new assignments. And the types of buyers are a little bit different right now. So we're not seeing a whole bunch of first-generation, 70-year-old man franchise brands started with one store, built it up to 25, 30, 40 locations, and is now ready to sell it because he's ready to retire 
We're not seeing those types of deals like we did in 2021. And frankly, gosh, for the last 16 years before that, those types of clients largely at this very moment are just operating, have their head down. They're probably enjoying hopefully a little bit of same store sales growth over the summer and into the fall. It was a brutal 2022 with high commodity costs and high labor costs. So they're probably, you know, tending to their farm, so to speak, and preparing their business. I think those types of folks will probably become sellers sometime, you know, maybe next year, especially if we start getting some interest rate relief. But they're going to hopefully have a trailing 12-month financial statement that looks strong. And they may kind of re-enter the market. And those are always really good deals, you know, because you've got... Typically speaking, not always, but typically speaking, a seller who is a first-generation franchisee is a little more reasonable than a private equity or family office seller who is lawyered up and has all kinds of hitches to their business. Not that those businesses aren't attractive to buy, but those types of deals are typically you know, necessarily larger, but typically going to be a little more arduous just because of all the professional folks around them. But these other businesses are definitely attractive, the first-generation franchisees who sell. And that's what I'm hoping will come back to the market. In the meantime, right now, we see largely interesting circumstances that may be a one-off circumstance. I think you've heard me say over the years that maybe there's always going to be, if the height of the M&A market in the franchise world is like selling a 100 of whatever's businesses a year, let's just say 100 businesses, just for a round number, right? There's always going to be 25 businesses that sell in any given year and to have no correlation whatsoever to timing because of like good time to sell, but just 25 businesses, you know, someone gets divorced or a partnership splits up or someone's ready to retire and their health is failing them, or they lost their key operator and they've lost their heart for the business. And so they decide to sell, or maybe there's some distress in the business that's not part of a whole franchise system, but is just like a particular to one franchisee. So there's always going to be, in this silly example, there's always going to be 25 deals in the marketplace. When it's frothy, there'll be 100. And then most normal times, there's, let's just say for the simple number, there might be 50 or 60 deals, right? So the world in which we're living in right now, at least from an unbridled standpoint, is probably in this, we were at 25 and now we're cruising up to 50 or 60. But yet the people that are selling are the ones that are largely professional firms of large unit counts or maybe second or third like, you know, like iteration of businesses that were bought from the founding franchisee five to seven years ago. So chew on that for a little bit. That's just an initial observation. I do think the M&A activity will continue to increase. One of the items I've noticed over the last kind of 30 to 60 days is that the phone calls have increased in certain brands as well. So there are certain brands where I'm getting lots of calls and then others were not getting any. And I think maybe that has to do with kind of the strength and the rebound in some of the brands. And the ones that aren't getting that strength and rebound are probably sitting on their hands a little bit right now. So stay in touch with us. Find LinkedIn. I do a lot on LinkedIn. So find me on LinkedIn and let's connect that way or find Unbridled Capital. Okay, there was an article that came out here, oh, just recently from QSR Magazine. It was entitled The 17 Best Restaurant Franchising Deals for 2023. I make no comment on the list they came up with, although it was a really well-written article. I may or may not agree with all the brands that they have on the list, but it brought up an idea that I wanted to talk about with you guys, which is uh, what would you look at if you were going to be going through and thinking about investing in a franchise, inquiring about a franchise? This article, and you can check it out for yourself, lists a couple of things. And I'll go through some of these right now, like number of U.S. franchise units and the number of total units. That's a pretty cool thing to want to know, right? So if you have a brand that has 5,000 units in the United States and zero are franchised, well then... 
that's not a brand that you're going to be able to become a new franchisee in, right? Unless you can petition the franchisor, which other people have done unsuccessfully up to that point. So that's an interesting one. If you're looking to acquire in the franchise space and get in for with a platform investment, you probably want to know the percentage of the total units that are franchise. So that's really kind of a good place to be looking. And then behind that number and that percentage, you want to say, well, who are the type of franchisees? How many franchisees are there per unit? And these are some of the things that will help develop your strategy. I mean, if you are looking to become a 10-unit owner-operator in a franchise, well, then you probably want to see if you either want to do one of two things. You want to see that there are other 10-unit franchisees that are getting approved or that are part of your system. And you probably also, if you're shooting for that type of an investment, you're probably going to buy an existing business and then you're going to like develop new stores. So in that type of a model, you'd want to know what the development looks like, how fast they've developed, what are the open development territories, those kind of questions, right? If instead you are a, let's say you're a young private equity duo, two ladies in New York who are both Harvard grads and have decided to start up a fund and they want to invest in a franchise business, right? Something like this. Most people in that regard are going to be like, I need to have something large enough to hold an operations team and an existing management team together because I, as the investor, don't have, I raise the money and I can learn about franchising and I see it as a good asset, but I don't want to manage it and operate it myself. So in that type of a situation, you certainly want to look at the percentage of the number of total franchise units, right? That there are total units that are franchised. And you also want to know that there are a lot of larger franchisees, because if you can't enter easily into the brand and have enough of a store count and enough G&A to be able to handle the management team, then you may move elsewhere to look, right? And so that's a really important one. I mean, if you're going to buy 10 units, you're not going to be able to probably put a sophisticated management team in there and be able to afford them, right? Unless you're willing to fund kind of a loss or a very low return for a number of years until you build your unit count. So that becomes important. Let's see, what else? System-wide sales is another, yeah. I mean, you know, system-wide sales is interesting to me. Maybe less interesting to me than, I mean, it's all a math problem, right? System-wide sales is basically like what? Like average unit volume times number of units. So I'm really interested in average unit volume, and I'm really interested in total number of units, and I'm really interested in number of franchise units, and I'm really interested in the average franchisee's size. Okay, those are the things I'm interested in. Also interested in geography. Where is the brand penetrated? If it's a national brand, like some of the big seven or eight or nine or 10 and they're everywhere, well, then maybe it's not as big of a deal. But if you're into a regional brand or one that only has 500 or 700 units or 300 or 1,000 even, you want to know where it's concentrated and where it's been successful. You know, there are some brands that started in the Midwest and do really well in the Midwest, but you try to take them out West and no one's heard of them. And there's a lot of brands that are in the West that are really, really good that don't make it over the mountains, over into the Midwest and over into the Eastern side of the country. So I think you want to think about that. Like in the good old days when I used to work at Young Brands Corporate, you know, I think sometimes we miss the mark on the strategy of like shotgunning new multi-brand units throughout the country without thinking about instead staying in one geography and building the smaller brand and building the marketing clout and the brand awareness in one market or in adjoining markets, you know? And so when you just jump across the country and you don't have a focus regionally, oftentimes it doesn't work really well. And if you're looking to invest in a franchise brand, you just need to pay attention to the geography, both of where like the store 
the business and the foundation started and the story behind how it started and where it started, but also where the franchisees and the corporate units are dotted throughout the country. One of the things people always tell me if they have like a, I get calls all the time from people who may have started some sort of a franchise restaurant concept or non-restaurant concept. And they tell me, they say, I've got 10 units now can I sell this to a private equity firm and get a huge multiple? Because if you own the brand, even if it's a startup brand, in good times with a good story and a good trajectory, those types of deals could trade at a much higher multiple of EBITDA than an existing franchise business would trade. At the same time, they can also trade for very little value too, if they're not profitable, if there's, you know, I tell people a couple of things, I'm like, and now I'm rambling, but I hope you appreciate my rambling. Maybe there's something in here that's interesting to you. I tell people a few things. I say, okay, if you're going to start a new brand, don't franchise it too early. I'll say that. I'll say, don't fail. So in other words, like if you've built seven stores and two of your seven stores are not good and five of the other ones are awesome, there's too many that are not good. It's going to really kind of turn off an investor or someone that wants to invest in the franchise. I say don't franchise too early. I see the mistake quite often where people like say, oh, yeah, I got my buddy. I started a pizza shack in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I got my buddy from business school who lives in Salt Lake City and another buddy who lives in Austin, and they're going to blow it out, and we're going to go to those cities next. I say to myself, you know, nine times out of ten, that's not going to work. Instead, what I like to see is that you build out Raleigh, be patient with it, get 10 stores in Raleigh and then jump over into whatever, Winston-Salem or jump over into Charlotte or an adjoining market where the brand can develop a regional reputation and grow it slowly that way. And don't franchise until or look to sell if you have the capital to do it yourself until you've proven the model really, really well in two markets, two separate cities or DMAs. That's just kind of the advice I always give to people and not to rush into that type of approach. So back to this, when I think about the question of what makes a successful franchise, and if you're looking to invest in it, you certainly want to care about franchise average unit volume per store. That's a big one. So what's the average unit volume? Are you a Chick-fil-A that's averaging four and a half million dollars a store? Wow. You know, or are you a XYZ Froyo brand that is averaging $375,000 per store that sits in a mid cap like space. Those are two very different types of businesses, for example, right? One's got like double drive through people going bonkers out the side, tons of traffic, lots of sales and profits, but the franchise model is obviously a unique one. The other one is a either a one-unit owner-operator brand, or if you're trying to invest in a brand with that low of an AUV, you better be able to, to develop it quickly and have a lot of them because you're counting on penny profit, right? You're, you're on $400,000 in volume, you're counting on hoping to get 15% margin, which should be your goal before paying the bank. But after paying all the bills, you should be able to make 15% profit margin after paying royalties, food costs, labor, advertising, fixed costs, rent. I'd like everybody to be able to see a 15%, what we would call store level operating profit and before GNA, before like owner's salary. So to get that 15%, if you're only doing $400,000 in average unit volume, that's $60,000. I mean, in order to build a substantial enough business to lay a professional piece of management over top of it and to grow it, you're going to have to have like 30 of those things, right? So these are things to be thinking about, not only averaging a volume, but then we start looking at same store sales. How are same store sales looking? How are traffic patterns looking? Who's your biggest competitor and how are they performing? Can you take market share from them? Are they in your market? 
Is your business, is it a new business? How does your business perform in this brand? Like, does it perform? Is it one of those you open the door like a restaurant and bam, sales and profits are typically high. It's a big boom when it opens, big grand opening, but then like it settles at 30% of the opening day's volume which can be, depending on the brands, a pretty good number. In other words, in the first day, if you do 10000 in sales, you may settle at $3,000 a day in sales once you've gone past your launch curve, which is typically five to six months. Or is it a brand like we're working in a non-restaurant brand now that's a health and wellness brand, and that brand doesn't operate that way. It's one of these where you open it, and when you first open the location, I mean, it has to ramp up in sales because it's kind of a subscription or service-based model where people have to like know it's open, and you build customers slowly. And once you build the customers, they typically come back on a regular basis but it takes maybe as much as one and a half to two years to build up to that steady state volume. So that's kind of important as you look at average unit volume too. Some of the things this QSR magazine had in here, they also put in like franchise fee, which is the initial fee that you would pay to open a location. Usually we see that fee being somewhere between twenty-five dollars and $45,000 per store. Sometimes it can be negotiated with smaller franchisees or smaller franchise unit counts that you're looking to build. Sometimes people have development agreements. That's another question you want to ask and learn about. Like what's the, whether you're buying existing and you have to have the franchisor's approval, at which point the franchisor may ask you to enter into a development agreement. What does that look like? How many units over how many years? Or if you're coming into a system new and you're looking to go de novo and, and start with zero and build it up to 20 units, like can you have a protected territory while you're doing that for how long? And if you can't fulfill that obligation, can you have outs on it that don't impair you financially? And so those are questions to ask. Royalty is always something you want to know. You know, royalty is, you know, is typically somewhere between 3% and 8%, but it can be higher or lower than that, depending on type of franchise brand. And then how's it paid? Typically paid monthly. And then there's usually some sort of a advertising and marketing fee. Some of the new brands have, there's all kinds of an array of ways to do the marketing and advertising. If you have some of the big brands of which we spend most of our time, it's a set percentage that's somewhere usually between like four and six and a half or seven percent. Most are in like the five to six percent range. And that's just paid on a monthly basis in many cases to the franchisor. And that's for all the marketing that you see across the country for the brand. And, you know, in smaller brands, they don't have the clout to be on TV with advertising. So they're typically collecting either a smaller marketing fee as a percentage of sales, but they have maybe in their FDD a way to increase that with unilateral or not with unilateral control. It depends on the franchise agreement, depends on the franchisor, depending on how many units there are, right? In other words, we only have 100 units and we're only going to ask you to spend 2% of sales and remit that to us for our marketing efforts. But if we get to 500 units or if we get to 1,000 units, that number is going to roll to 4% of sales, right? Something like that, because there's some sort of then a the kind of a line in the sand where they can hire an ad agency or they can get on TV or, you know, There's other ways to look at some of the marketing expenses. I've seen some over the years where like you can spend marketing in your market and you just have to remit the expenses to the franchisor and they have to like, and then they pay you back for the marketing that you have spent. That's something you see in smaller brands as a way for the franchisor to acknowledge that the marketing all needs to be local in a new brand, but also 
not fully trust the franchisee to just say, oh, I spent the money on marketing. So they collect the money and then the franchisee sends their expenses to them and then they remit the money back to them. And then I think you see a couple of other things. You want to kind of do a look at the amount of M&A activity, the success of the people who've gotten involved in the brand. In the recent past, you probably want to look and see what type of franchisees are getting into the brand. You want to look at, you know, another is the cost of opening units. That's a big one. So most FDDs are going to have like a really wide cost. It's going to be very wide. And so my pushback is to try to get specific, right? Someone say, oh, it costs somewhere between a half million and a million two to open these locations. Well, help me understand that. What's the difference in the cost there? Why is that cost so different? Can you show me examples? Where are the majority of the cost? How are the costs allocated? I mean, that's obviously a big piece of being a successful franchisee is understanding what it costs to pop open new stores. And then lastly, I'll say that you have quite a few of incentives for new development, especially in today's world, because franchisors are back on the development push, right? But the cost of development is still outrageously high and labor is really, really expensive. And oh, by the way, have you seen what interest rates are recently, right? So people who are good operators and want to build new units are having trouble fulfilling their development obligations because the cost of opening a new store is really, really high and real estate's hard to find and interest rates are high. So you want to see if there are incentives to build new units. A lot of franchisors are going to give you some incentives if you're in some of the smaller brands that really want to be a firestorm and get the new unit development count open. So they may discount royalties from 5% to 3% or 2% for a period of years, you know, and kind of burn it off to get back to normal to give you, you know, some breathing room as you start new units and to encourage you to do it. Some franchisors will kind of refund will not, not make you pay marketing dollars, right? Or, you know, suspend your marketing fees or your royalties for a certain amount of time to recoup the cost, like the first $100,000 of a remodel or maybe a new unit that's built. These are all hypothetical numbers, of course, but these are some of the things that can happen. And of course, if you're involved in a smaller brand, your ability to negotiate increases quite substantially. And I think lastly, before I move off this topic, I'd say, Know who your owner is. Who is the franchisor? Do some diligence on who they are, what people think about them. Not only just like the success and quality of the franchisees in the space and somebody you might think about like being in high school. Did you ever do this when you're in high school and like you had like a co-op program where like we did at our high school, like junior in high school and you're going to show up and go sit with some guy or girl who volunteers their time for a day to show you job shadowing in their profession, right? So you want to do that as a prospective franchisee if you can. By the way, I did an actuary when I was a junior in high school. And so I had this guy, I drove around with him in a car and we went to his office and he sat there and his job was basically, I mean, you know, I was only 16, right? So I didn't know a whole lot and I wasn't real patient, but I was sitting there basically watching him calculate the projected death of people. (laughs) And I was like, I kind of like the analytics behind it. I love how you know numbers so well, but I don't know that I could do this for my whole life. But you want to know who your franchisor is. Sometimes your franchisor is going to be a publicly traded company. Sometimes your franchisor is going to be a private company, private equity-backed private company that is a consolidator of brands. Sometimes your franchisor is going to be a family Sometimes your franchisor is going to be a smaller private equity group that only owns one or two brands. You know, so be cognizant of that, of who your franchisor is and what their motivations are. A lot of privately held franchisors are looking to sign big development agreements, get larger franchisees in their space and crank up their development so that then they can go public when they have a certain unit count in a certain 
EBITDA in their business. So these kinds of ideas, if that's what they are planning to do, may impact the way you as a franchisee may interact with them over the course of your relationship. Okay. Hope I didn't spin your head too much on that topic. I can talk about that for like, I don't know, man. Talk about that for years, probably. A couple of other things I just kind of jotted down here. One would be increasing difficulty of private equity buyers and sellers and corporate and lenders. Yeah. So the question had been asked of me of how long it takes to do a deal in today's environment. And my answer is it takes 50% longer in most cases than it did two years ago. And you're like, what? And it's a combination of reasons. Number one, if you're a seller and you're a private equity seller, typically you are a slower seller than a family. That makes sense, right? If I own 100 tax franchises and I'm the only owner of it and I sell it, I make the only decisions. I don't have a team of people around me, an investment committee, lenders and attorneys hanging all over me, and I can just make the decision quickly. So when the seller is a person, a family, a first-generation franchisee, That is like, if you're just like, you know how keep track of like put a notch on one side or a notch on the other in terms of like the balancing scale of how long a deal takes. So let's say a deal takes six months from soup to nuts, okay? Actually, let's say it used to be six months and let's say now it's eight months, okay? And there's reasons. Primarily, it's a little harder to get money now. Underwriting process is more challenging because capital is not quite available, You know, the franchisor has gotten a little more stringent and a little slower, either because they're understaffed or because they were coming out of COVID or wanting to be more judicious and slower about how they approve deals. And maybe they're also a little bit more hungry for development coming out of COVID. And so they're going to take more time to get these deals approved. But let's say you're on this seesaw and the average deal has gone from six months to eight months now, right? Start to finish. Okay. On one side of the seesaw, we have an operator who's selling the business, not a private equity or family office group. Well, seesaw, that eight months goes to seven months, okay? So then we have a question like, who's the buyer? Is the buyer a private equity group or is the buyer an independent franchisee? Seesaw, if it's an independent franchisee, that eight months just went to seven months, just went to six months. If the buyer is a family office or private equity, in many cases, that seven months just went back up to eight months. Why? Buyers, private equity buyers, especially ones who aren't in the business, you know, existing, have some pretty robust and understandable processes they have to go through, including several times to their investment committee at several different stages to get the deal approved. They do lots more due diligence because they don't typically know the concept as well. They've never operated it right, as opposed to somebody who might be an existing franchisee of 100 units who's buying 30 more units and has already operated for 20 years and knows the ups and downs and highs and lows. You also have the private equity family office community. Have They have investors that they have to answer to. And so they have to go through a pretty serious process of quality of earning studies. And they have to be really mind their P's and Q's about the decisions they make since it's OPM, right? Other people's money. So you see the seesaw going back and forth by as much as two months based on who the buyer and who the seller are, right? And so, and then you see some other things like what brand is it? And how does the franchisor typically, based on like someone like Unbridled, like we would know pretty well in a lot of brands how long it takes that franchisor to approve a transaction. And you might be surprised. In the last six months, I've seen a franchisor approve a deal in less than 30 days. And I've seen a franchisor take over six months. And that's like similar size deals, similar environment. That's how much 
it can change. So you might have a two-month seesaw one way or the other based on the brand you're trying to sell or buy, right? And then the financing structure also makes a difference. So you could have the seesaw going in one direction or the other by at least 30, if not 60 days, based on the type of financing, based on the amount of debt, based on the size of the deal. So all these things rolled up together, no kidding. If everything's on the wrong side of the seesaw, that eight months could be a year. If everything's on the correct side of, I mean, I say the correct side, the short end of the seesaw or whatever, it could be a five-month deal. Very rarely are you going to see a five-month deal, and rarely are you going to see a one-year deal. More likely, you're going to see an eight-month deal, maybe trending to seven months, maybe in the six months range, maybe in the nine months range, whereas before it was like six months was normal, maybe in five months, maybe in seven months. So there's just much more variability now. I hope that answered that question. And, you know, like, again, I'm glad to, you know, go to our website, unbridledcapital.com, if you want to see me talk about this or, you know, more than just in podcasts on videos and webinars and stuff. I have one more question, which is going to be pricing on real estate and real estate activity. Okay. I'm just now getting all this ginned up, but I think what we're going to do next time is we're going to have another webinar soon. And I'm going to invite, I'm going to try to do a, a real estate webinar and have like a real estate broker and then real estate investment trust on the line. And we're going to talk about what's going on in the real estate market right now. How does it impact franchises? Is it a good means of financing? What's going on in the 1031 market? You know, these types of questions. So stay tuned for that. Usually want to do that once a year, just so we all stay abreast of kind of the current cap rates and inventory in the market and things like this. I just have a couple of notes that I'd like to talk to you about. And the the question is specifically what's going on in the franchise real estate market right now, you know, with cap rates and such. And so, again, we're going to have more, you know, the next episode should have much more robust answers from experts stronger than me in the area. But general notes are, you know, cap rates are obviously up. Most people I talk to who are in the space every day across all these different asset classes, even out of franchising, industrial and commercial and retail and all these things, they're going to say, I think in general, that the cap rates are probably worse or higher by somewhere between 60 to 100 basis points from last summer. Now, you might ask yourself, you know, so 60 to 100 basis points change is pretty substantial. I mean, that's a 100 basis points change on a six cap rate is like, you know, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it's somewhere between 15% drop in the valuation of a piece of real estate, right? Most of that is attributed to the interest rate going up so much this past 12 months. So 60 to 100 basis points is typically the range. So uh, I hear, just as an aside note, that inventory is that has stayed on the market. So people who are selling real estate, I hear that inventory has increased, and that has hit kind of a, a relative high in the last couple of months relative to the trailing 12 months or the last you know 18 months. So that's something to note. Is that a surprise? No. So people probably you know put their real estate up for sale. Real estate is priced at a pretty high rate based on a very attractive cap rate. And the cap rates have been degrading because of interest rates. And the properties aren't selling because they can't be financed at a return that's desirable for the buyers. And so they just sit. And then I've been hearing anecdotally, too, that there's been quite a bit of uh, price dropping activity. That's not a surprise, right? It's not a surprise to see prices drop as people try to move real estate with high amounts of inventory and with buyers saying, I can't finance it and make any money. You know, there's still this very, I think, real effect of people's particularly in California 
who are moving out of California, they have a piece of real estate that they sold and they're looking to do a 1031. Don't underestimate the power of wanting to defer taxes, right? So in that case, those Californians don't want to have to pay taxes on their money because they end up with less than 50% of it after they pay taxes on federal and you know, in a state side, again, it's, it's less than 50% if it's all uh, capital gains, but still it's a very high rate. So that's a very powerful motivation. So I think if you're, you know, a lot of those investors and people have like one or two pieces of property that they sell. So that's kind of the low end of the market. So the low end of the market may still be operating in a way that's not quite as impacted by the cap rate increase because it's also motivated by taxes and an individual's taxes, if that makes sense. So that's another comment. I think is the question is, are cap rates hitting their highs and going to stay here or are they going to continue to raise? And so I think the jury is out. This is just one man's opinion from talking to several others in the industry. I would say it's always been my opinion that cap rates have increased or gotten worse with a delayed effect based on interest rates. I've just seen that in the market for so many years. So if that's the case, we're still at the tail end, but we're still raising interest rates, right? So it's likely that cap rates are going to be continuing to get worse for a while after interest rates have stopped being raised. How much and when and how, I don't know. I'm frankly quite surprised to see deals happening at 60 to 75 basis points below last summer, which was near the peak. You would think it would have been much higher than that by now, but the delayed effect seems to be, you know, kind of pricing through the market. So that's my yeoman's version of what's happening on the real estate and cap rate side. Again, it's after talking with some folks in the industry who are more spread out across different asset classes than I am and unbridled is, but hopefully that gives you a little bit of an insight. I guess lastly, I would say this, If you're planning to attend RFDC this fall, Restaurant Finance and Development Conference, it's done every year by Franchise Times and the Restaurant Monitor. This year, it's November 13th through 15th, and it's always in Las Vegas. You know, you can Google it. I think it's like restfinance.com, but that's a good conference, right? And kind of puts together all the deal makers and attorneys and lenders and, you know, some franchisees as well and some industry experts. And we sit around and we talk about you know, the existing state of the industry, how to do deals, how to finance deals, how to negotiate purchase agreements, you know, all these other areas. And then we look at what's going to happen in 2023. Last year, I did a panel. It was uh, basically like the state of the M&A market. And it was well attended. I heard from John Hamburger, who's coincidentally a great name, right? He's the head of the RFTC event. He said that it was the most heavily attended. I don't know. I looked out in the crowd. We probably had, I'm guessing, three or 400 people were watching. But we're going to do that again this year. So I'll be doing another panel. If you decide to come out to Restaurant Finance and Development Conference, which is you know, coming up by the time you hear this, it'll be a couple of months away. Reach out to me personally if you like. I'd be glad to catch up with you and just kind of shoot the breeze. So thanks so much for listening. Stay tuned next time for a hopeful webinar with talking more in depth about real estate. And God bless you guys and girls. See you later. Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors LLC give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. 
We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom. 